This is The Widow Podcast and I am Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I'll be supporting you through the loss of your life partner so you can find a more positive way through your grief. I want to give you hope after loss and to know that when you are ready, you can create a meaningful life for yourself with the help of me, Karen Sutton and The Widow Podcast. And welcome to another episode of The Widow Podcast. I have a really lovely lady coming to speak to me today and all of you to share her story. Melissa Gallagher is coming in from Dublin and is going to share her story of widowhood and about her husband, James, who died in July 2021 and her experience of her grief, her loss, supporting her husband through his illness, having small children, navigating COVID. There's a lot, there's a lot here and I know you'll find the conversation and what Melissa shares will resonate with you deeply but also offer you some ideas on on how to support yourself as well. So Melissa, welcome, thank you so much for being here. Hi Karen, thanks for having me. Bless you. No problem at all. So can we just start, start at the beginning. I think it's always a good place to start, isn't it? A little bit about James, sort of your life together, who he was as a person and and how your your journey started, I guess, with with James's diagnosis. Um, Well, James and I actually met out in Sydney, Australia in 2011. He was a boy from Birmingham and I was a girl from Ireland. Um, and we met online actually just before Tinder became a big thing. Um, and literally from the first night we met up, he made me laugh. He, he just felt like someone I'd always known. Um, yeah, he was, he was fun. He was laughter, generous, thoughtful, very smart, um, but um, quite hard on his sleeve as well. I remember even on our second day, she kept saying stupid things and then owning it at the same time. And it was just, it was, it was really, really sweet. Um, so yeah, I suppose from, from the moment we met, it, everything just flowed quite naturally. Um, and we built a lovely life together in Sydney and we got married and stayed in Australia. We had our first son there and then we moved back to Ireland in 2017 with our first boy. And I suppose like most other people our age, we were put through the absolute ringer trying to get a mortgage and buy a house. But it eventually all fell into place for us in 2018 when I was pregnant with our second son. And, um, yeah, life was good. We moved to a suburb just north of Dublin. Um, so neither of us knew the town, but it's a seaside town and James loved to be close to the ocean, um, as do I. And, um, he always had a really good appreciation for nature. Um, he loved our local park and yeah, that's literally how we spent our lives. Like, you work hard during the week, you spend weekends with your, your small kids um, at the park, at the beach. And then in 2020, COVID hit. Nobody needs reminding of that, I'm sure. Um, but like all other families at a similar stage of life, we juggled that first six months with the demands of toddlers, the demands of work, the Zooms, the everything that came with that really chaotic period. But as you will probably remember, the weather was beautiful. And we were, despite the stress, we were outside together every day, having fun with the kids. James was, his absolute favourite role was being a dad. I mean, he was a brilliant partner, but his boys, he just... He was the kind of fella I'm sure he bored people to tears and work by the water, you know, by the by the by the water yeah. uh, station with with photos Cooler, and videos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, he actually, even though it was stressful, he really relished that time of being home with the boys. 
And then fast forward to August 2020 and um, Bobby, our eldest, is about to start school. Michael is finally about to start crash because they're all reopening. And I wasn't feeling very well and neither was James. So we were like, oh God, do we have COVID just when we're finally about to give the kids off to other people for a few hours, you know, and... um, Days passed and it transpired that I was pregnant with our third child and James was not getting any better. And, you know, I thought, look, it must be a chest infection. At the time, the GPs wouldn't see anybody with any kind of COVID symptoms. And sure, look, by the day, the COVID symptom list was growing, you know. Um, And I just said to him, you know, a good another week or so had passed and I always had quite bad morning sickness in all of my pregnancies. So you can imagine my tolerance wasn't (laughs) where it should have been, you know, because I'm already throwing up most mornings and I'm kind of, he was just such a fit, healthy guy out running every day. And I just thought, James, it's a chest infection, babe. Just, just tell them you need an antibiotic. But he, yeah, he just, I don't know how to explain the deterioration. It was quite shocking. Um, So by the time the GP saw him, she said, I think you've got a collapsed lung. I'm going to send you to casualty. So he he rang me and he said, I I have to go to casualty. She thinks my lung has collapsed. And I don't know how to explain the feeling that came over me, but I just... Something very deep in me didn't believe that. And I, I don't know what I believed, but I I just knew everything was everything was not good. And when he came home, I was flapping and, and packing him a hospital bag. And I was like, I'll, I'll drive you to hospital. And he was like, no, 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 Mel, you, you keep the boys routine. You know, our kids are so small. It was still very much about the, the dinner routine, the bath, the book, all that. And he said, I'm going to go. I'm going to be fine. You probably won't be allowed in anyway because of restrictions. So he got um, a cab into casualty. And he said, look, you know, relax, Elisa, we know what's going on. Because I've known myself, I, I really haven't been feeling well. And I can only describe the next 10 days as torture. Um, they began to drain a lot of fluid from his lung. Liters and liters were coming off and I couldn't, I wasn't allowed into him. So, I, you know, he needed supplies. We thought he was going in for a day or two and then suddenly he needed fresh clothes Hospital food is dreadful. Everybody knows that. So he needed like fresh food Um, and I wasn't allowed past reception. And I was told you need to label it, his name, phone number and and leave, basically. So it was down to James to update me every day from the hospital. I didn't meet a doctor. And I suppose we had gone from being a really strong family unit to the boys, just me and my, my sister, my sister moved in and helped me for a little while. Um, and at the time, for about 10 days, we were working on the hope that it was a pneumonia that had somehow been missed and escalated, or then it became a, a strange infection. Then on Friday, um, September 11th, he rang me and I, I just already knew uh, he, he was crying. And he said, um, they're saying I've got cancer. And I had known all that morning. That I don't know how I knew because I wasn't allowing myself to Google, but I knew. And I just remember I had taken the phone into the front room. And my sister was in the kitchen with the boys where we have a TV and they were watching Peppa Pig. And I just felt the floor. And I just did not know the first thing about what I was going to do to to help him. Um, Just even the fact that he had been told. And, you know, because he was such a heart in his sleeve kind of man, um, you know, he just saw him scared. And it was just a, it was a really crushing moment to hear that from someone you love so much. And to not even be there to, to hold him. So I I just said, I'm, I'm coming to get you. He said, they're going to let me home f- for the weekend. And I thought, okay, that that's bad because 
this will all have to be kind of backdoor stuff because it's COVID, you know, you're not really getting out of hospital and going back into a hospital. So it's a big deal that they're they're letting him home to family time. And um, I, I drove in to get him. And we just hugged and cried. And then we went home. And even the change in him that weekend was very, very, very shocking. Um, and I think what happened from there was the stuff of nightmares. So when he came home, we didn't know what kind of cancer. Uh, I was then told I needed to bring him back into hospital. He had to have a COVID test, obviously, before he could even re-enter the hospital. And from then on, it was a lot of guess. I felt like guesswork. And that's not a criticism of, of the doctors. It's just... I learned pretty fast that we weren't dealing with anything kind of typical. Um, you know, he had gone from being a perfectly healthy man to a man that looked very different and was in a lot of pain suddenly. So I was called into the hospital and sat with a consultant in a very small room. And I think he basically told me to prepare for like a stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis. And, you know, James was weeping in the chair and he just said, I'm not going to see my boys grow up. And I said, you will, because you just will, because that can happen, <laughs> you know. And then just the strangest few weeks unfolded, Karen, where none of the tests were coming back with anything concrete. So it transpired. You can imagine each day feels like a year in the world of cancer. I think anyone who's been through this journey knows that. Like you wake up and if it's not a day that you're getting results or something's happening to actively combat the, the disease, you're, you're just nearly wishing the day away because it's just, it's like a form of torture. Um, so when he finally got all these tests done, they, they couldn't find cancer anywhere else in his body. So I said, well, I don't know much about cancer, but that can't be stage four cancer, can it? But in the midst of all this happening, James just got sicker and sicker. And I'm saying this as someone who wasn't seeing him every day. I was just hearing him on the phone. And each day he was more and more removed. He was getting no sleep. He had no break from the pain that was kind of going from his pleural cavity up into his shoulder. And... Eventually, then he was moved to an, the oncology ward and I was allowed in there once to meet the head oncologist who was going to come up with James's plan. And I was so shocked when I saw my husband that day and I wanted to like take him in my arms and run away from that hospital because I just thought, what, what, what are you doing on this ward? Like you are young a few weeks ago, you were boring me senseless with your, you know, when everybody was doing their keep fit during COVID thing and they had their maps and they were running in funny shapes. And I just, I just saw how, you know, I just thought this can't, this cannot be real. Um, how old was he, Melissa? He was 39, 39. And he, the head oncologist came in and he sat me down and he said, look, at the moment, we're not sure. There's a few different things coming back in James's results. We're not sure if it's a lung cancer or a testicular cancer. Um, so we're going to treat him for both. And he started then to describe to me the various horrors that were probably going to accompany the treatment. And he said, um, you should know that this treatment is going to make your husband infertile. And that's just when I broke down and I said, I'm nearly nine weeks pregnant. And he just, he just kind of bowed his head, you know, and everybody was in masks. So I could only read his eyes and I became pro at reading people's eyes. And he said, I'm so sorry. It's going to be a really, really difficult few months. And I said, okay, okay. Um, and I said, can you please get started? Because James at this point wasn't even partaking really in the conversation. He was in so much pain and uh, he described various medical reasons to me why they couldn't start straight away and I was so desperate for hope I said to him well if you're not starting straight away then he can't be as, as sick as you're making out right because if if it was really urgent you'd start now wouldn't you you'd start trying to save my husband now like I was frantically looking for 
reassurance. And he, he just said, we, it's just not safe to start yet. Um, so eventually James did start treatment and he was an impatient for most of it, Karen. Um, it, it was a really grueling regime, um, you know, two types of chemo medicine and the various other pre-treatment and after-treatment things that they get and white cell boosters and he was eventually allowed home to me at some point in the October. And I feel like anybody else who had to go through cancer during COVID will probably remember that terror of any germ getting near your person who was going through chemo. And we had a son who had just started crash, and we had another son who had just started a primary school. And suddenly my strong, fit husband was like a newborn baby to me and you know and he loved his boys so much you know I said to the doctors my husband is not going to stay up in that we have an attic room like on the third floor I said he's he's not and they said you know you just have to be really vigilant with the sanitizing so you can imagine yourself your nervous system living with that you know, and then you're trying not to frighten the kids, but you're like, just please, you know, make sure you've washed your, you're trying to be really calm. Just make sure you wash your hands again. What What did you say to the children, Melissa? What was, what was your sort of reason for James being away so much and poor? Initially, it was, it was, it was his truth. It was truthful, actually. I was very honest with the boys. I, I said to them initially, look, daddy's quite sick and the doctors are trying to work out what's wrong. And then... Once I began to process the diagnosis a little bit, I said, look, daddy has a, he's sick with, with germs called cancer. Like in hindsight, that probably wasn't the best word because the kids were living in a world of COVID germs. So, so they said, are they, did it get into him? Like, how, how did he get the germs? Did, you know, and I said, no, look, it's hard to explain, but, but daddy is sick with something called cancer and he has to have really strong medicine called, called chemo. And the chemo medicine is going to make daddy's hair fall out. So daddy's is going to look different. And, you know, then they were confused, like how could the medicine make dad's a bit sicker or a bit weaker, you know, and I just had to explain. It's like he's had to send like a little army in to get rid of the bad cancer germs, but the army is so strong. It's killing all of daddy's good guys as well. I had to try to make it really simple. I don't know if I did the best job. Did anyone help you with that? Did you, did they, do they guide you in any way in terms of speaking to the children? My sister is kind of in that, that field, the psychology field. Um, and I remember her, she, she's like one of my rocks anyway. Um, but I honestly, I can't remember if I got any other professional advice. Um, you know, you have to remember a lot yeah. of the charities weren't open anyway to in people support yeah I do remember a few times ringing the Irish Cancer Society in floods of tears so they possibly gave me some advice that (laughs) has gotten lost in the in the storm yeah it's hard it's it's hard finding the right words Mm. isn't it you know especially when you're feeling so much and trying to make sense of of so much and then trying to explain it to to young children when often we as adults are, are don't necessarily understand everything that that goes on in those situations. But, you know, I think honesty, you you know, like you say, you were honest and you did share, you know, an age appropriate level, share the truth. And I think sometimes that's the best you can do, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And I I think kids have really good inbuilt bullshit detectors anyway, don't they? Um, (laughs) You know, very intuitive. Very, very. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That was the better word to use. <laughs> no, but it's yeah. true. No, you're. They mm. do. They they know. They know. And I think we really underestimate children and what they pick up on, what they understand, what they feel, what they see. Um, they're not stupid. They're not stupid by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. And I think the, the, the truth. Um, it always. It. I think it is as hard as it is. You know, it's the last thing you want to tell your children, but. It helps them. It does yeah. help them um, long term. Yeah, I think. yeah, um, yeah. It was. I mean, look, I I could probably stay here all year. Uh, 
talk like I there's no point in going into all of the details there wouldn't be time but it was it was a very difficult traumatic few months to maneuver even to the point as my pregnancy somehow miraculously did progress even just the fear of having to start you know you remember the whole thing of leaving your bubble during covid and i thought yes. I have to leave our bubble now to to go and get and get the baby checked and and risk bringing home um, COVID to James. You know, yeah. I did cancel one or two appointments, and then was racked with, with mother guilt. You know, especially when I was getting very stressed and getting early Braxton Hicks. You know, and I thought, God, I'm not doing right by the baby. You know, it was, yeah, it was it was yeah. a really really awful time. Um, I suppose to to finish up just about James's treatment, we were told initially the maximum we can do is is four cycles of this chemotherapy and that will be it. And then we reassess. But actually, James did respond so well. After these long few months, uh, his oncologist called me back in and said, we're actually going to go for two more. It isn't normally the done thing, but we feel he can handle it. The rest of his body is very strong. So... James's chemo took us right up until February and I was due our baby in April. Um, and then in March, we finally, we had more scans. Every, you know, again, people who've been through cancer will understand this. You've got to get through the treatment and then go for your tests and then wait and see, was it even worth the hell that it was? Um, and we were told that the disease was stable. It had shrunk a bit and... Basically, go live your life now for three months and, you know, just pretend, you know, that this terrorist isn't living in your house with you. Um, But you know what? James was just, he was just so brave and really excited that he was going to be treatment free to be there for me and the baby. I was getting bigger. I know I'm sitting down now, Karen, but I'm, I'm only five foot tall. I've had three boys. They've all been big boys. I've always had a big bump. And it was just, in some ways, the universe gave us a little bit of a hand for those few weeks at the end. I had really physically kept the show on the road for the whole time. And just as I was really beginning to struggle, uh, James just got this boost of, like, the chemo was kind of leaving his system a bit. His appetite was back. He was cooking. He was just relishing being a dad again. And... um, I had this third baby had to be delivered by C-section due to two previous C-sections. So we had a date and I just needed the baby to stay in until that date. And the the stars aligned. Uh, I felt a couple of times like Oscar might try to come a bit early, but he, he stayed put. And James got to be by my side. And yeah, Oscar came into the world on the 21st of April. And it was amazing. It was very bittersweet. Um, it was, you know, uh, I don't think anything's ever the same again once, once cancer's been to your house. And we just really savoured that time in the hospital. My doctor was very good to me. She made sure I got a room. And even though it was strict visiting hours at the time, exceptions were made for for James to come in when it was less busy because he was still a bit vulnerable you know and for those few days in that hospital room when it just got to be the three of us uh, it turned out to be really really gifted time we went home and we were a little family of five and James's work who were incredibly supportive throughout everything said to him don't even dream of coming back to work till you've had a good month with your with your baby and your family, get some strength back. You know, chemotherapy gives major fatigue that takes a long time to leave the system. So we just had this lovely, lovely few weeks. And when Oscar was three weeks old, uh, I noticed he kept saying his chemo brain was getting worse. Everything felt foggy. And then... Uh, one night he just held his head and he winced and I just got that feeling back in my body like I'd had when he was first diagnosed and I just thought oh no and so I sent him to casualty and 
again, he had to go in on his own and he rang me and he said, he was crying again and he said, it's, it's in my brain. Um, so on the day he was supposed to be going back to work, which he'd been really looking forward to, he went in and had brain surgery on his own. Um, the first time I drove after the C-section, Oscar would have been five weeks old, I think. And I drove the three boys in for a little picnic. James snuck out at the hospital. And it was, you know, the boys didn't know, but I wanted them to have one good picnic with their dad because anybody knows a brain surgery, you just don't know. You don't know anything. So that has proven to be a really uh, bittersweet memory as well. I have photos from that day that still hurt me to look at, but I'm glad I have them. And then I guess the brain surgery went well, but um, things just never got back on track, to be honest, Karen. And um, again, I'm conscious. I know I could go on. It's, you know, there's so many details but James deteriorated and he lost consciousness when he was in hospital to have laser on the tiny bit of tumour that was remaining. And he lay unconscious for eight days. Um, and I went in and slept with him every night. The hospital were good. I, you know, they pushed his bed next to the couch. And then he passed away on his 40th birthday. And then the next day would have been our seventh anniversary. And I realized actually as the days progressed, I thought, oh God, I know what he's doing. He's waiting for one of those days. Um, and that was my introduction to, to grief, not even just widowhood, to grief. I'd never experienced mm. a real loss before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. At what at what point did it become obvious to you or were you told that James was, was going to die? Was that ever said out loud or was never, that always hope? Never said. Never said. No, no. To the point that about nine months after James died, I found myself in my park walking my baby, hysterical, and I rang the oncologist secretary and I said, I need to speak to him. And I forced myself to walk back into that hospital on my own. I didn't tell anyone I was doing it because I thought people would worry. They'll, they'll think, she, you know, Mel's not coping. Um, and I sat down with him and I said, just tell me if you ever told me behind my back, did you ever tell my husband that he was going to die? Did he know? And he said, no, uh, I remember your husband as incredibly bright and optimistic, you know, and that, that was James actually. Yeah. Um, so no. Did did you and James ever talk about if he didn't survive, like when he came home or you had those moments, was there were there any conversations between you that acknowledged that it might go that way and and have a conversation around it, or did you cling on to the hope? Um, I think we mostly took turns in protecting each other. This is with a lot of hindsight, Karen. I've <laughs> I've journaled and journaled. Um, I do remember one day when he was strong enough and we went for a walk on the beach and he said, you know, my prognosis might be great, don't you? And I said, yeah. And then later on he found me crying and I didn't like to cry much in front of him. Um, and he said, I shouldn't have said what I said. And I said, no, you should if you need space to talk about it. And he said, no, no. I need to mind you and the baby and don't worry, Mel, my treatment is going really, really well. So I I would say if I think if we got more time after it, it spread, you see, with, with brain surgery recovery, that's so massive. Like, you know, his thinking wasn't as clear after that. Um, he did phenomenally well. I mean, being James, he downloaded an app specifically for people after brain surgery to try and sharpen his brain. Like that's the kind of man he was. You know, he was very active in, in trying to get well again. We both were. Like I, I really did try to help him in every way I could with supplements and diet. And But no, Karen, no. I firmly believe, again, with hindsight, um, if anyone had sat me down and told me your husband's going to die and it's not going to be long, I, I don't think my third son would have made it. I even remember the first time I drove away from the hospital after the oncologist told me of the treatment plan and I got a pain so bad, so bad. I thought, this is it. I, there's no way this baby is going to survive. 
you know, and somehow he did. Um, so yeah, may, maybe there were a lot of times James tried to protect me and the baby, and I, I don't know. And and does that help? Because I, I, you know, obviously working with widows a lot and and supporting people through their journeys, there's there's often a lot of of guilt or regret around the things that could have been said, wish they had have been said, um, weren't said, or, you, you know, just like you say, with hindsight, we all look back, don't we, and, and think about what could have happened uh, or what we think should have happened. And we're very good at beating ourselves up about these things. But I guess for you, does it help in that respect that that belief system helps support you in that, you know, you were pregnant at the time and you did go on to have Oscar, a healthy boy. And does, do you feel like it helps you make peace with it in, in some way? Yes. Yeah. I've taken m- myself back to those moments. Actually, I've made myself sit back in some of those chairs in those consultation rooms. And no, I, I would never have been brave enough or strong enough back then to have been told your husband isn't going to survive this. No, I think especially because like I said, I, I'm lucky enough. I still have my parents. I have all my siblings. I still have all my friends. All of my pregnancies resulted in me being handed a beautiful, healthy boy. I, I just, I hadn't any experience of loss of like life altering loss. Um, so no, no. I think that's just how it had to be for me personally. I don't think I would have been that brave. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and how old were the boys when when James died? Uh, so our eldest was five. My middle boy was two, and Oscar was three months old. Wow. What happened then? What did what did you do? It, it was in COVID. You had three boys, one one very young. Was your sister still with you? Um, how did you find support through that? I think initially, as you would probably know, or anyone else listening, in the chaos, generally speaking, people just come. They just arrive. I had gone from a house of just me, James, and my kids for a year to just people arriving into my kitchen. And I remember sitting in the armchair breastfeeding the baby don't ask me how I was still breastfeeding. Like as James was dying, I had to bring a breast pump to the hospital with me. I don't even know how I thought of that. And I thought, okay, my milk's probably going to dry up. I I guess I thought that, I don't know. But all I know is every time I walked through the door and Oscar was handed to me, there was some kind of instinctive, I'm going to feed this baby and maybe he's going to keep me alive as much as I'm going to keep him alive. So I, I don't know, like those first few days, weeks, even months were just so, I did not know what planet I was on. But I guess the shock kept me going and kept me looking like I obviously was coping. So there was a lot of family around to begin with, you know, especially because James was unconscious for eight days. People had to come and be with the baby, you know, so I did have all my family pretty much moved in. Um, And then again, and everybody knows this, you know, after the funeral, and it's not a criticism, but people people do have lives to go back to. And I think the hardest thing is, especially with a widowhood loss, you don't have that life to go back to. That life is gone. You're in the same four walls, but they're so different, you know, and you have all the same jobs to do. And now you've their jobs to do. And I just don't even know if there's words, is there yet in the human language for those early days of widowhood. No, no. And also the, the hormones of, of, a, of a young baby, breastfeeding, you know, and, and your other two boys were still incredibly young, trying mm. to support them and process their grief and your grief. And there's COVID mm. as well. I'm assuming the funeral wasn't what you would have hoped it, it could have been because it was restricted, was no, it? No, at the time, yes, it was. Um it took me a while to remember that on our sixth wedding anniversary, we'd been out for dinner and James had laughed. It's all oh, the next year will be seven years, babe, seven year rich. What will we do? And cause things were good then. And again, with hindsight, I realized that I spent my seventh wedding anniversary writing a list of who could attend the church for his funeral. Cause it was 50 people. 
And again, you're doing it, but you're not. You know what I'm like? I was obviously doing all the tasks I needed to do, but I did not really feel like I was the one steering the wheel. And, you know, it was, I don't even really know how I was making decisions. I guess I was going with whatever the gut instinct does at the time, that survival mode that we all have. Yeah, (laughs) it definitely takes us. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's... uh, doing what you've got to do but just in in this sort of parallel universe where you you just don't understand the world anymore and and what's just happened and you're trying you're trying to make sense of the fact that somebody that you know you live with and and is your is your life partner like they're they're gone that's such a that's I mean I think it takes a very very long time to to really yeah. wrap your head around that and understand that and those you know those early raw days of grief that there is that yeah. shock isn't there you are in shock I think and it's that 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 keeps you going almost like the body's protection system of only allowing you to feel what you can actually take on at that point so that you can still function and do yeah. the things that you need to do but like you say that there just aren't the words sometimes and 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 experiencing that is is scary and and thinking ahead as well you know the life that you created what's that now going to look like and how are you going to manage how obviously you were in lockdown and I've spoken to to many people that have have lost life partners in lockdown and there's a real mixed sort of bag of of how people feel about it in hindsight and some people yeah some people look back and go do do you know actually I think it was good for me because it made me slow down it gave me the time and space to grieve to adapt to to understand what was going on for me for others it was just hell because they they couldn't get the support they needed and and everything in between as well how did COVID impact your grief at that time? Was was it in some ways beneficial, some ways just absolutely horrendous? Where do you sit? Um, I would have to probably sit in the horrendous camp. Um, I think more from the time that was robbed of me and James and more of the pain I carry for how much he had to face alone because really by the time James died, the world was starting to try and go back to normal, which was nearly infuriating, really. It's probably a good thing that I was so zoned out, actually, because it could have made me more angry. But, you know, I think around that time restaurants were reopening and you had to like, what, I don't know, give them your phone number and show them you'd had a vaccine. Um, I know that people who wanted to be at his funeral couldn't because they hadn't had the COVID vaccine, so couldn't fly from the UK. So I think I was on that weird cusp of as I was starting to literally drown and suffocate in grief, the world was going, oh, deadly, we can go to the pub again, you know. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, yeah, I'm probably in camp horrendous. (laughs) Yeah, and and it's funny, isn't it, that... You know, I remember when when Simon died, and obviously it wasn't COVID at that point, but I remember sort of going about my day and and driving to the funeral directors and seeing people just walking around town, going shopping, having fun with their friends, laughing, and and you're just absolutely flabbergasted, aren't you? Like, how? How are you doing that? Like, my world has come to a grinding halt it's been shattered into a million pieces and you're out shopping with your mates having fun like this feels wrong and I think like you say for you as well people almost getting excited about sort of you know being able to go out and live their lives and do the things that they want to do that they've missed for you just feels so wrong that you can't you can't feel like that this this is my life this is my reality and and how can you and yet yeah, all those emotions that that stirs up within us it's just it's harsh yeah. isn't it it's really yeah. harsh that that feeling of of the world carrying on without your person in it yeah it's awful it is awful like the first time I heard someone laugh on the street it was like it was like a physical assault I was like do you not know yeah. what's just happened? I mean, obviously I just kept on walking and crying as I basically did for a full year. You know, I'm in a kind of a 
it's not a small village. There's a few thousand people, but um, I, I'm probably known at this stage, like, you know, the local Jackie O. Like, I just walked around for at least a year with my buggy and my sunglasses, even when it was basically dark, just crying, you know. And, like, I, I could get on with all my tasks. I think, again, that's the really scary thing about the shock and grief, you know. People go, look at her, isn't she great? She's put on her lipstick. Sure, she's strong. She'll be fine, you know. And you're just broken. You're just... You're absolutely broken. And like that, the world is just carrying on with its problems. And yeah. yeah, problems that you just can't even, you just don't even care about half of them. You know, you just like your problems are nothing. <laughs> I don't know. Problems. Like, really yeah. just no. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, that, that whole just the, the assumption that people make because. You can't see grief, can you? I think, and this is this is huge, isn't it, in our grieving journey? Yeah, you can see it when people are crying and sad and devastated, but that's not always what grief looks like on the outside. And yes, we we still get up, we get dressed, we go to work, we get the children to school, we go food shopping, we make meals, and we put our makeup mm-hmm. on and do our hair, and 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 for all intents and purposes, you're you're functioning, you're doing okay, but that that doesn't reflect what's going on on the inside and and how it is for you on a, on a day-to-day level and the energy that it takes to continue to do those yeah. things to to keep stepping into each day and trying to find your way through it without your person next to you it's it, it's indescribable yeah, it, it really is and 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 the exhaustion i mean having three young boys oh at the best gosh, of times so is, is exhausting yeah. you, you know throw grief into that what what helped you what helped you in that time melissa to to, to navigate your your grief and get through um okay so first off i will say that while because james was english and i'm from a different part of ireland we'd no family locally so I got in two au pairs. I, had, I, I knew I needed help until Oscar was two if I was going to give my kids any kind of life. So I had uh, two amazing girls, both of them from Germany. Um, and it was just another person in the house for a while. And, you know, they were great girls. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for them at times because I was and still am like trying to navigate this, but just that practical support, you know, because like Oscar hadn't even started, you know, Oscar still couldn't even hold his head up when James died, you know. So that that practical help for two years and it enabled me the space to go for a run. Running helped me. Writing, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and cried and ran. And I, I honestly think they, uh, and podcasts, oh my gosh, I did, I think I said this to you, like, I remember thinking as I sat on a bench with Oscar in the park, I don't know if I'm going to survive it. And to be honest, Karen, like, and you probably know this as well, when it's really, really black, you're like, I, I don't even care if I do either, do you know? And then it became, well, no, 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 I'm going to survive this for the kids. And then gradually, and this is where I'm really getting hope now. I'm like, no, and I I want to survive this for me now. So I'm starting to care a little bit more about Mel's story, not not mommy and not just James's widow. There, there's part of me that's done a lot of work and reflection and I'm doing my best to heal. And but yeah, I, I think a big part of that was podcast, listening to other people's stories, because when you're widowed in your 30s, chances are none of your friends understand this, do you know? Um, so you have to find other people who have lived this and are still standing and, and can give you that hope that like, I know how bad that is. And I, I know you think you're not going to get off the bathroom floor, but you will. I promise you, you will, you know? So, yeah. I think it's, we just, we so need to hear that, don't we? That because you, you can't understand in those very early raw days how you're going to find any kind of light in your life any joy any any way of moving forward it just it feels impossible everything that you're doing almost feels futile and and you just can't see it you can't see it it, it feels like this is yeah. permanent and that's a really scary thought because like you say we're not we're not taught about grief we don't understand it and i think 
exactly like you say and for me as well it's going out and seeking people that have walked a a similar path isn't it and and just asking them to share their story and you know share what worked for them what didn't work for them where they are now and and just reminding us that actually wherever you are in in your journey and and whatever is going on for you right Mm -hmm. here and now you won't stay there it takes a long time and it's and it's really slow and it is painful and it is it's hard work you know like it doesn't just happen like you've just said you you've done a lot of work on you and you know I did the same in in my journey and that really helped me navigate that way through it but it's not easy to do that work is it to make that that choice with everything else that's going on yeah no it's not but I I think you have to what what was that work for you Melissa um, it was certainly, um, I struggled very badly with, with flashbacks, with just things that were seen and, and things we lived through. So a huge part of my work personally was actually facing those flashbacks, like literally walking back into all those rooms and seeing and hearing all the things that I saw and heard over and over and over. Like I said, a lot of writing, because I think when you write, there's just you don't get the lump in the throat like when you're trying to explain yourself because the page is blank and you can put anything you want on it. And I just think a lot of being brave and looking a bit more to the future, which I couldn't do, like that early pain and grief, that pain where it is literally suffocating you and it's beyond anything you can explain to anyone. I could not even try to start looking at life without James. And I read somewhere, don't focus on anything, just focus on the next hour and then the hour after that. And I I was doing that. But part of my work then has in recent months been like, okay, no, start being a bit braver, start looking a bit more forward because he isn't coming back. And you know exactly what he wants for you and the boys and you're doing everything for the boys that he would want and that I want, you know, I want my kids to be happy. Um, I want them to remember a happy household. We still laugh and dance and have music, but I need to just start to do some more of that for myself. So even just in the last few months, I've just started to put on high heels again and, and go out with friends when I can, which isn't easy, by the way. There's not people banging down your door to mind three boys. Although my, my local friends have been absolutely amazing in that regard, I'd be lost without them. But um, yeah, so I think some of my work has been starting to get a, a bit braver and facing the reality. So when now you know, now you're able to look ahead a little bit more. What do you hope for in that future? I just hope that I can keep myself, this is going to sound bizarre to a lot of people, but gratitude. I could start most days sometimes off very little sleep and I normally have at least two little boys in my bed. But it's, I still want to be grateful for what I still have and I want to carve out a life that is still happy knowing that I'm sad every single moment of every day that James isn't here but it's you know after such a huge loss it's just learning that these opposing feelings are probably just always going to exist in me now and I just want to yeah, I just want to keep going. And I, I hope some days the boys grow up and understand everything and think, wow, like fair play to, to mommy. Like she, that was a shit hand she was dealt and she, we had a good childhood. Yeah. And I just, I just hope more and more laughter. Guilt was something I struggled with a lot. I had to do a lot of work on guilt. And I just hope that that can firmly leave me alone. Because <laughs> as we know, a lot of things keep coming back up. <laughs> Absolutely. But I feel like I've danced, I've danced a lot with guilt. So yeah, I just hope I have a well-balanced life. I'm doing my best to mind myself physically. I think people who haven't had a huge grief don't understand the physical impact it has on you. And I'm really trying to, to mind myself so I can be in good physical health to, to do the things I want to do. You know? I think, you know, there's nothing quite like the loss of, uh, of a loved one, specifically a life partner when you're, you're left with, with children to remind you how important our, our health is and, and how to support ourselves and, and look after ourselves. And it's not, again, that's not easy to do, you know, to find the time, the energy, the inclination, the motivation to do the things 
that you need to do to give you what you want. You know, it's it's sometimes easier just to sit down with a packet of biscuits and a bottle of wine, isn't it? You know, and and, and kind yeah. of not do what's going to to serve you, but it, it's allowing yourself to see the long game. And I think that comes in time naturally when we've got more time to think about it and and to acknowledge that that side of us that we do care you know but it's not there initially yes that is that is very very true yeah it's like in the early days would you've moved out of the way of a speeding truck probably not no uh but after a little while you're like well yeah I would because I want to mind the kids and then I feel like I'm at the place I'm like no I yeah no I will I will because I yeah I'm still here for for some reason and I'm want to give it my best shot and I think well I know I, I know that that's what James would want me to do you know so yeah that's I'm doing my best and sometimes that's not great and other times it's good enough well that's the thing isn't it you know doing your best looks different every day and expecting yourself to show up the same <laughs> yeah. way every day is is just you know sometimes doing your best is is just sort of <laughs> cleaning your teeth and getting the kids off to wherever they need to be isn't it and yeah. other days you'll climb mountains yes, 100% <laughs> Uh, and, and giving yourself permission, I think, to 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 do both of those things, and exactly mm-hmm. like you've just said, those the opposing feelings that we feel in grief. You, you know, it's the sadness is always there, but there can be joy and there can be be life alongside it, and not not instead of it. And I think that's something that yeah. we can only learn in time as well. We can hear it from other people, and I, I think it's only in time as we experience it for ourselves that we really do understand that and feel it and kind of go okay that's it and and that that again is a, is different for everyone in, in how that shows up but it but it does and it does happen what how are the how are the boys doing now melissa with 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 their grief um they're good i think socially i'm really proud of them they they go well into school they're friends they behave my approach with them has been from from the get-go, you ask me anything you want, anytime you want. I don't care who's around. If they're uncomfortable for 30 seconds, so what? They can get on with their lives. This is our life. So I would speak, we, we speak about James very openly. I'd like to think it's not in an over-the-top, you know, shrine or anything to him. It's just, it's just, I just keep James alive in in their minds because they're going to have so few memories. Oscar only knows them from photos. I only have a few photos of them, but you know, it's people don't understand really kids grief. Like when James died, everyone said to me, it's probably Bobby. You need to worry about Michael will be fine. And the baby, cause they're so young, they won't remember him. And that absolutely devastated me. Um, and what I will say to anyone listening on the subject of children, like my middle boy just started school this year and it, it's like they go through these cycles and they're kind of rediscovering their losses in the exact same way we do, if that makes yeah. sense. I hope that makes it sense. Does. Like Michael's questions now as a five-year-old are very different to his questions as a three-year-old, but they are real questions and they are him really trying to learn again okay, why he was the only one with no dad there in the first day of school, you know, or to understand cancer again or why, you know, they're the only kids in their class with with no dad. Um, And it's like the the grief, and you know it too well, the grief you feel on behalf of your children, it's, it's like another, not even layer to grief. It's just like a whole separate area of pain and grief work that you have to do because... Like when I, when I can, I get to Bobby's football matches, you know, and it just, my heart breaks that there's so many dads on the sideline and James isn't there. And James would have been the first dad there again, back in work, boring everyone about how many goals Bobby scored, you know? So it's the pain you feel for all the stolen moments, you know, that they've had and that they haven't yet realized have been stolen, but they are going to. I did get to bring them to this amazing bereavement camp just two weeks ago. It was put on by two charities here in Ireland in a place called Barrettstown. And that was very helpful, not just for my children, for all the children, just to be in a camp 
full of fun for other kids who had lost a parent to cancer. And that unspoken understanding, it's been really powerful, actually, for my boys, even just the way they're talking since we came back. So, look, I'm really proud of them. I think they're doing as well as they can. Um, but it's hard. And I, I wish people would understand it never goes away. Do you know, when when they're 30, they're, they're still going to not have their dad. Exactly. And I think, yes, you know, children when they're they're young may not have the the memories um that maybe older children have but their understanding of death and dying and and illness that changes as they grow and you have to keep explaining it at, at different levels as as they develop their their understanding of of the world and how it works but exactly like you say it's it's all these milestones in life that they're going to go through and starting school senior school going on their first school trip um you know going off to to college to university the their first girlfriend or boyfriend and getting qualifications, exams, driving, getting married, having kids. It's just every single step that you take in life that you don't have your parent there to share it with is awful. And it's so awful. And and I, I mean, I'm 46 years old and I still have both my parents and I can't imagine a world without the minute. And I look at my, my girls and I just think, God, you, you know, like, this is shite. You, you know, there's just, yeah. it's it's horrible, you know, and they're, they're trying to make life decisions and you know that their dad could help them with, with so many things in so yes. many ways and teach them so much, but he's not here. And, and it is, it's hard and it never goes away. And I think you're right. It is that, that misconception that as time goes on, you, you kind of, you're, you're, you are okay and it goes away, but it, it doesn't. You learn to integrate it into your life and you learn to live alongside it, but it's always there and, and sometimes it's it's heavier than, than others, but it, it never completely goes away. But, you know, you said there that you're proud of your boys. I hope I hope you're proud of yourself as well, Melissa, that you can really feel that you have done an incredible job. Yeah, no, thanks. I am. And that's probably, again, coming back to that work. I just, you know, I did take on board, you know, when everybody says, be kind to yourself, be kind to yourself. I was like, what does that even mean? And then I... Yeah, dug deep and I am being kind to myself. Yeah, actually, that's one thing. It's probably one way I honour James. I'm like, right, well, if he isn't here to tell me I'm awesome, I'll just have to do it, you know, even on the days when it's really hard. Yeah. Okay, so just just to finish, I just wonder if you have any sort of golden nuggets, any wisdom, anything that you feel may be you've learned over the last couple of years that you'd like to share that you feel might help somebody on their journey where they are that maybe you'd like to have heard at some point in your journey that might have helped you? Um, What do I wish someone had told me? I think you just, you can't run from it. I think it's going to wait, unfortunately. And I think you have to just hold on tight especially when it's really, really, really dark and you think, I cannot do another minute of this, then just do another 10 seconds and just try to keep believing that it will, it will get a little bit brighter. It will never go, but there, yeah, it it will get a little bit brighter. Yeah. It's so, so important. I I love that, that reminder. And it's, it's such a, a, a great reminder that, you know, sometimes we can look too far ahead and it feels too, too much. Like we just can't get to that place in, in the future. But like you say, it's, it's just one step. It's one step at a time and, and supporting yourself with that in the best way that you can. Um, I will just say as well, just be, just be really, really mindful of how you speak to yourself. That's the other thing um, I think has helped me in the last year because you're, we're going to get a lot of things wrong when you've when you've lost your life partner. It's it's kind of too much for one person, and I think giving yourself a hard time is yeah, it's only going to make everything even harder. You just it's the old cliche. You just have to be your best friend when you've lost your best friend. Yeah. And I, and I think as well, understanding that, you know, as we are thrown into to widowhood and we're trying to, to find that way forward, it's not that 
we're getting things wrong. We're just trying to figure it all out. And, and some things will work out in a way you'd like them to. Some things won't. And, and actually, that's giving you information that's helping you understand what's going to work for you in, in your new life. So it's, it's trying as well to move away from that sort of right, wrong thinking, isn't it? And, and allowing yeah. yourself to just take action and do things and understand that whatever the, the, the consequences of those actions, it's, it's given you information about what's going to work for you in, in one way or another, um, which, which is important because we have to do it. These take these steps, you know, and, and they don't always work out in the best way, but it will tell you what isn't working for you. <laughs> Yes. Bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story Thanks, um, and, and, and sharing, you know, your, your memories of, of James with us. I do appreciate it. And I know it will resonate with, with so many, with so many. It's like you say, it's just nice to hear other stories. Thank you. And actually just to say, when I mentioned podcasts, yours being one Aww. of them was a huge, huge help to me. So thank you. Um, I was very glad when I discovered you in one of my frantic, how am I going to survive these searches? So yeah, thank you, Karen. <laughs> and now what a wonderful way to give back. You know, now you're doing the same for somebody else um, yeah. that, that was in, in that similar position. Yeah, I hope yeah, so. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to The Widow Podcast with me, Karen Sutton. If you would like to be part of a supportive community of people who understand your grief, come and join my free Facebook group, Widowed and Rising. And make sure you tune in to the next episode of The Widow Podcast. Podcast.